listening to Unfiltered with Muhammad Uncut, a podcast about personal growth and authentic leadership. If you're looking for tips on how to manage others, get ahead, and make your way up the corporate ladder, this is not the show for you. This podcast is about being of service to others, leading from the heart, and evolving into a better version of yourself. Each episode brings you motivated stories about unfiltered leadership and authentic leaders, those who involve others, use their influence to amplify diverse perspectives, and inspire teams to achieve collective results. If this sounds like you, keep listening. Hello and welcome to the Unfiltered Podcast. And I've got an unfiltered leader with us today, Dennis Patoko. Welcome to the podcast, Dennis. Uh, thank you, Mohammed. It's, it's a real pleasure to be here and spend some time with you. Well, it's going to sound cliche, but it's an incredible pleasure to have you. For <laughs> my listeners, I've been working with you now for the past few months, and uh, yeah. it's been an eye well, actually, it's been a heart opening experience. I so it, it really is the people that you've introduced me to on your platform and what I've gotten to know through you and what you're doing, it's incredible. But I'm getting ahead of myself because I think I want to let people know who Dennis is, and then we'll get into who, what Dennis does. So, sure. Dennis is the founder, the publisher, and the editor-in-chief of the award-winning Life, Culture, and Biz New Media Digest. He's, the also, he's also the founder and the chief encouragement officer of Good Works 360 Degrees, their affiliated global nonprofit social impact enterprise. Dennis is dedicated to providing mission-critical pro bono services to good nonprofits worldwide. He's a contributing author to the best-selling book, Chaos to Clarity, Separate Stories of Transformational Change, and he's my unfiltered guest this afternoon. Welcome, Dennis. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks again. Well, that's the only part of the podcast that's scripted because now I want to talk heart to heart with Dennis. So sure. Really looking forward to having you and having you share your experiences of who Dennis is and what he does and the change that he's making in the world. So why don't you take us and just tell us who is Dennis Patoko? Well, that's a, that's a uh, loaded question. I'm glad we've got more than five minutes because I'm not going <laughs> to give you what most people call the Reader's Digest condensed <laughs> book version. Um, I, I am a reflection of so many good people that I've been blessed to be associated with for a number of years, going back to my earliest days in my career. Now, you thank you for that wonderful introduction. What's interesting about that, Mohammed? Um, that had nothing to do with my occupation. That wasn't my forte. That wasn't my education. I am what, you know, there was a movie back in the 1970s or 60s. It was called The Accidental Tourist. I am the accidental publisher. And let me explain that. I spent, I'm going to round these numbers up, about 35 years in banking around the world, buying, selling companies, working for the large banks, a lot of entrepreneurial startups, sales, M&A, you name it. I ended up over in England, I met my wife over in England, ended up selling everything over there, and we moved back here and are living happily ever after for the last 15 years here in Tampa. How I became what I am in terms of prior to um, launching Biz Catalyst and Good Works is a reflection of some, I mean, there's some people in my life, I'll just give you one example, but you can multiply this out. When I say blessed, I really do mean blessed because I've learned over years of being in leadership positions, Muhammad, that 
you know, some of the best wisdom I have ever gotten is from of the best people I work for, but also from some of the worst people I've worked for, because you know what you don't want to be, and you know what you do want to be, and you can start to see the difference over a period of time in one person's career and another person. But the guy that I hold out as, I'll call it my life mentor, is a guy named Phil Goldsmith. I worked for him as a, I was in Philadelphia. I've worked pretty much in almost every major city in USA, but at one time I worked for him in Pittsburgh and he was the head of a giant banking division. He recruited me to come in and do some interesting stuff. But Phil was what I call the Renaissance man. He was a banker. He was prior to that a deputy mayor. He was an author. He was a publisher. He's a writer. I mean, this guy's done a lot. Of, he was a lawyer. So this guy probably sounds like the guy you can't trust. <laughs> He's involved in media and he was a lawyer. Politician and a yeah. lawyer. <laughs> but what's interesting about that is I didn't know. I only worked for Phil for about three years because he ended up retiring. I ended up moving on. But I didn't know what a marvelous um, mentoring experience um, I was involved in now, he didn't hire me to mentor me. He was a senior manager. I was, a senior, you know, it was just hiring and here's the keys, go do it. But along the way, you know, you learn very often in leadership roles. It truly is lonely at the top, as they say, because there are certain things you bump into that you just haven't seen before. And you'd love to pick up the phone and say, and, and call Muhammad and say, Muhammad, I know you're not in my business, but here's what I'm faced with. And Muhammad's the kind of guy that's tell me what I don't want to know, which is the kind of people you want to, because if I go to a senior manager that works for me, they're going to try to please me. They're going to be the yes man in most cases. But Phil was the kind of guy that wasn't that. Um, and he and I were doing some pretty significant things in this giant bank, which I won't name, but we were transforming this bank. And it was the kind of thing that Phil was with the bank total about four years. He hired me about one year into his thing. We were kind of the new kids on a block. And the reason we were recruited, but first Phil, and then Phil recruited me, is this stodgy old bank had a lot of managers. I mean, they've been around forever in Pittsburgh. They were the name brand bank. So you can imagine us two Yankees coming in, being asked to transform this whole section of a bank. Nobody was glad to see us. Everybody thought they should have had our job. And they were out to cut us off at the knees at every step of the turn. Now, this is not a fair analogy, and this is not a political statement, but the best analogy I can think of is Donald Trump being elected to president. And for, what, four years, he's, people have been trying to cut his legs off like we've never seen before in a president. I'll stop the analogy there. But the point is, so we're up against this avalanche of uh, people that didn't want us to succeed. Boy, that sure tests who you are and what you want to be and will you do it the right way or the wrong way. And I bumped into a number of things as I was doing my job where I had to go to Phil and say, Phil, it's a very delicate situation. And in general terms, I found out that one of the most senior people in the institution had been cooking the books for years. And nobody found it because no, everybody was part of the forest. I came in and I could see the trees. Now, it's one thing to catch that, Muhammad. It's nothing. what do you do with it? Because you're up against an icon, not only in the bank, but in the industry. This was a name brand. So I went to Phil and said, Phil, here's what I got. Now, Phil reported not to this guy. He was a peer. Phil reported to the chairman of the bank. So did this guy. So now Phil had to give me his wisdom. And it was interesting because 
I really struggled, two things. Number one, should I even bring it forward? Because the, the pushback could be on me, I could lose my job. Not be, because maybe somebody pushes fellow away and say, look, get rid of him. You know, he's a traitor. Um, but here's what happened. Phil and I talked about it. We reconfirmed everything. We made sure we had the facts, Muhammad, because obviously I'm carrying a hand grenade around in a folder. And I remember Phil saying, I'm going to go meet with this guy's name was Ned. He said, I'm going to meet with Ned. I'm going to set up a lunch with him. And he did. And then he came back. He came back and he called me after lunch and he said, that really went well. And I said, how could that possibly have gone well? He said, here's what I did. I put all the information, Dennis, that you had gathered all the facts, I put them in a folder and I put them in front of Ned at some point I said, Ned, there's some things in here you want to read, really important stuff, perhaps not the most complimentary stuff, but let's have a good lunch. I'd like you to go away and read it. And then perhaps we can get together again for lunch. No confrontation, no challenging. Um, that happened. Phil told me the story. And then we just sat because, again, chairman could have easily said, get those two guys out. They're the new guys. And they could have easily replaced us with the old guard. I am so pl pleased to say two weeks later, Ned decided to retire. That's the story. You know, he wanted to spend more time with his family, as they say. Uh, but that was such a remarkable experience. Number one, I learned how to deal with an uncomfortable situation. I learned that not only was I doing the right thing by bringing it forward, but that Phil had my back and he was gonna do the right thing even though I was putting him at risk. Um, remarkable experience. I'm gonna roll forward because about three years later, I was recruited to another large bank, another old, old guard bank. And I was coming in because they had seen what I had done in this bank and this bank was across the country. And they, they came in, they sent consultants in, they tried to recruit me because they wanted me to do the same thing. Because ultimately, what I did worked, whatever it was, a transformation. So I ended up going to work for them. And don't you know, about three months into the job, almost the same thing happens. Because I've learned when you take over something from somebody else, particularly something big that's numbers driven in a bank, you want to make sure you're starting at the starting line. So I do my, with my team, I will do my own version of, I hate to call it an audit, but I'll just verify that the starting line is what the starting line is. Well, don't you know, we found out that the, the post had been moved. Same situation, but now I had the wisdom of experience. I knew what I had to do and I did it. And guess who else uh, decided to spend more time? Spend with more them? time with their family. So that's twice now. How often does it, that happen in a career, number one? But it happened to me twice within a few years. But it just reinforced something that I believed in. And, you know, the question really just comes up like, you know, what have you learned? What's the jewel of wisdom that you can share with somebody over the years? I can tell you that happened early in my career. Um, but I learned, and this sounds a little bit like the old quote that everybody quotes, but doesn't really follow all the time. Always do the right thing, no matter what the risk to you, no matter whether somebody's looking or not. Because, you know, how do you wake up the next morning if you didn't do the right thing? How could I go back into the bank and say, I know that's all bad stuff, but I'm still happy to work here. I'm glad to become part of that. So I learned early on that, yeah, it may be a risk. Yeah, you know, it was a tough going in that morning because I didn't know if I was going to be handed my walking papers. 
And I've shared that with a lot of people because you see that quote out there a lot. Always do the right thing even no one's watching. I've lived that and I know it's true. And unfortunately, uh, you know, when people say, you know, what's missing in the business world today? It's that definition of integrity. You can right. quote, it looks good on a plaque on the wall, but um, it's, so, it's so visible to me in all leadership circles today, I shouldn't say all, not I'm broad brushing everybody, but it's more visible because of the lack of it. And what I'm talking right. about is integrity. And well, I wouldn't look at the business. When, when you don't have integrity, you lack that crucial value that helps you, you know, build the roots, build the foundation so that you can establish trust. And Amen. You know, what I, right, yeah. like what I took away from your, from your story there, and, you know, amazing that it happened to you twice, but that talks to the level of integrity that you have. Because I, I don't think things, you know, things come our way, but we also go towards them and things happen because we are open to the universe setting us the signs and how we react or respond to them. You know, it's going to either be something that defeats us or something that allows us to rise. What I, you know, my takeaway from your story is, you know, leadership isn't always easy. It's about making the right decision. Leadership isn't about undermining the other because you look at Phil and what he did to Ned, he could have easily exposed him, he could have hurt him, he could have said he did yes. the wrong thing, but he took the right, you know, he showed a lot of integrity by saying, you know, you're human, you made wrong decisions, and I'm still going to help you out in terms of you've got a family, you're a human, I'm not going to break you. A lot of the time we have to polarize our reaction to, to situations and say, well, doing the right thing means I have to, you know, basically blasphemize this person because they've done the wrong thing and do it very publicly right but that's not what you were not did so I, I think being as a leader being able to give feedback and support the people that we work with the people that we serve the people that you know are part of our team and I want to use this you know nomenclature and I, I really don't like it but the people that report to us right we have to give them sometimes a very unpleasant message but it's in the way that we can deliver that message that makes us the better leader that makes us the leader that they look to and come to us the next time that they find themselves in a difficult situation now we've built the trust we built a friendship and the f word is something we don't hear about a lot you know the friendship word right yes. because that is powerful when you as a leader can lead authentically lead from the heart lead with integrity you build relationships and when you have to do the right thing even when it's the difficult thing you end up going down a path that really helps you create a positive impact well, and, to, right? that point, to that point it you know there's often and i know you've been through this other people that have been in managed positions there are times in your career that maybe they're not as um, earth-shattering as those examples, but you are constantly giving, given opportunities to define yourself. Typically that happens, like today in the pandemic world, leaders are defining themselves by how they react. There's the corner office leader that never came out of his office, he just gave orders. Now he's gotta come out, not because he wants to, not because he was ever trained with anything resembling IQ or empathy, but because he's got to, he's got to show empathy. He's got to reach out to his people. And a lot of the people aren't there, they're at home. And he never wanted them to work there because he right. wanted control. So he's, number one, he's reinventing himself, but he's also defining who he is. Or does he just stay in the office and say, that's HR's job. So it's when you're in the middle of crisis, 
then I think you peel back the layers of who you really are versus who you think you are and test yourself. Um, and boy, that is the kind of wisdom that you just can't read in a book and it is priceless. Right. And, and you know, two things, again, two things that I take away from your comment there is, you know, you refer to the leader as he, and you know, we, we live in a Western yeah. democratic nation where most leaders yeah. are men, white men, privileged. Right. And so it's, Crisis is teaching us that the way we've always done things isn't necessary. We know it's not the best way to do things. We know we got here for a reason. It wasn't just because there's a virus. There's a bigger virus that's been permeating throughout our society for many years, whether it's this you know, virus because we've built our nations on colonialism and, and racism, and it's systemically you know, at the foundation of the countries we both live in and you know, Western countries. So we got here today into the heart of the pandemic, not just because of COVID. We got here because we were careless to the earth, we were careless to each other. And those leaders, men, traditionally, who, whether because of their insecurities or because of their arrogance, have locked themselves up in the corner office and, you know, felt comfortable and safe, now have to come out and they have to confront the amplification of Black Lives Matter, that doing things the way we did before is just no longer valid. They have to confront the fact that essential workers are truly essential workers. We may pay them the, on the lower end of the pay scale, but the service that they provide is one that is, I mean, we're, we're comparing somebody who serves you food at a restaurant, right? Or stocks the shelves of the toilet paper that people so frantically, you know, uh, fretted over. We're comparing those people to, to the people who are saving our lives, the first, you know, responders. So I think, you know, the things we need to learn as leaders and be in here, I use the word leader and somebody who sets a role model. They don't role play, but they role model the right behavior authentically. Integrity is to say, it's a matter of how do I behave and what are the values that govern the way that I get things done. It's and, a non-negotiable, right? Right. And the question is, where do you get that from? Uh, well, let know. me ask you that. Where, where do good leaders get that from? Well, in my case, I didn't. I didn't know it was lacking because I guess I was so early in my banking career, I didn't know what I didn't know. Phil taught me what I didn't know. But as I said earlier, I was being mentored almost by association, not because he was bringing me in every day and saying, all right, now we're going to cover this. I had already been developed as a manager through all the management training, but I was getting the live experience and he was molding me based on my observation of him, if that makes any sense. Yeah. And what was the age difference between you and, and Phil, if I may ask, at the time? Uh, about 10 years. 10 years, yep. right? Is, isn't it just opportune that today when we look at millennials and now the Gen Zers, you know, entering the workforce, you know, people in our age group were complaining because we either were threatened or we see that they have a different set of values or they different behaviors. And it, it, I think it's threatening. But rather, you know, if we can take the approach, if, as you mentioned, we can mentor them. We can mentor them to some of the best practices that have allowed us to stay with the organizations for 20 years. But they can mentor us on some of the things that they may have just been exposed to and, you know, whether in their recent educational journeys or because they are 30 plus or 20 plus, things that they're learning with, you know, the, the social sphere that we're not as readily exposed to. But that reciprocal mentorship, it's exactly what happened with you and Phil. I mean, yes. you, you absorbed what he was, you know, maybe inadvertently sharing with you, but yes. very intelligently, but then you absorbed it. And now I think you were 
you know, reciprocating by doing what you've learned. Yes, right? exactly. I think that, that's the power, I think, in mentorship. And we walk away from that opportunity often. Mm. So, amazing, simply amazing. Let me come back to, again, you know, we, we kind of skirted around the question. We talk about leadership. What is your definition, Dennis, of leadership? You know, I, I think about that one a lot because that comes up in different circles. And I think it's, uh, you know, if you ask me that question or perhaps anybody the question three years ago, six years ago, it would have been different based on where we are today. You know, I guess one of the classic answers might be, you know, taking vision and turning it into reality. And that's part of it. That's not true because that's what a leader might do uh, unless they're just leading a, you know, I'm a, I'm a change maker and I hate to, I want to say that with humility. <laughs> what I mean by that is I was typically recruited to shake things up. Okay, so my job was to help develop the vision and then, you know, translate it into reality. But the difference there, I think, and that would be more of a textbook definition, Mohammed. I think the difference is translated into reality but not independent of my team. Do it in collaboration with my team, you know, and base it on authenticity, integrity, because as we both know in, in this context, nobody really opens their arms and says, I love change. <laughs> this is great. Mm -hmm. You know, they're scared, you know, all the emotions and, and the things I faced at the bank where nobody, everybody thought they needed, wanted my job, they should have gotten it. They like the way things have always been. So I, I've just learned that boy, you get the vision, you know, you see where it has to go, but that's when I have to bring the team in and become part of it. But always, uh, again, this sounds a little trite, be authentic, you know, kind of do the right thing. I got to be the guy that's always showing up, stepping up, speaking up for the good of the vision of the team. When we get in those situations where there's that giant pushback, and, you know, I happen to be the guy on a front horse and we're taking the cavalry down the hill, I've got to be the first guy in. And I've got to be willing to shoulder all that with the team. And uh, to me, I think that starts to separate a normal textbook leader from today's leader, uh, particularly under difficult circumstances. You know, the visual that you helped me, you know, capture there is the word shoulder. So, you know, so many leaders wrongly assume that it's lonely at the top and they isolate themselves in these corner offices or in places where they're informatively uh, kept away from the people that they work with or the people that work for them. But when you think of a leader as someone who's shouldering that responsibility, you know, I think of Atlas and maybe because I've got this, uh, this globe here and I'm thinking, you know, <laughs> sometimes leaders carry the weight of the world on their shoulders, right? I see a leader as not someone who's at the top of the you know, corporate triangle, but I invert that triangle. You know, servant leadership is about the leader who is actually holding everyone up. And you are the, the, you are the fabric that knits the organizational structure together. You bring people together. You are holding people up. As you say, you shoulder that responsibility. Leadership isn't lonely. But part of that is, and another key point that a lot of people, and even I went through when I was a new leader, you got to learn to let go. You got to learn to say, look, I know if I'm delegating this to Muhammad and he's one of my junior managers, I know he's not going to do it exactly the way I'd like it. It may not be as good, but how's he ever going to learn? Let him 
trip a little bit, let him fall, let him work it out, right. be there, be there to shoulder him once again. But you know, it's so hard. And I, mean, I went through it of letting go. I've got this wonderful team. I've got the vision, but I'm going to steer the ship every step of the way versus saying, Muhammad, I know you're relatively new at this, but here's the keys. Now right. you steer it. Come to me if you need some help, but I'm just going to observe. I'll be there for you if you need more resources. You know, if I need to work on any issues with your team, that is a hard thing to do for most newer leaders, newer managers. Well, I, I mean, if you, you know, non-textbook descript definition, that's empowerment, right? So, you know, yeah. you show someone, they move out of the way so that they can get the work done. And, you know, to, to the point of shouldering that responsibility, you don't have to shoulder the weight of the world, but you can definitely be the foundation. But then let others build on top of that foundation. Let others build the structure, right? Yep. And that reminds me of a quote that Phil used to say that I grabbed onto. And it was because of what we were always doing, change. He said, lead, follow, or get out of my way. He said it a little more. Change, he added added a few more adjectives. Lead, follow, or get the hell out of my way. Some explicit adjectives, I'm sure. So he's giving you the choice to do it yourself. But if you're not, you better follow me. And if you're not going to do that, just get out of here. Is it wrong for a leader to move out of the way if they don't know, if they don't have the answers and to let somebody else get things done? Oh, I think it's, I don't think it's wrong. I think it's, you know, I guess you got to define how volatile the change is, but on a general, on an overall basis, I love the idea of giving you the baton and saying, see what you can do with it. I mean, obviously I'm going to stay close. I'm going to observe. I'm going to make sure you don't fall off the, the building, but how else do you develop that unless somebody trusts you enough? Right. Otherwise, you're just taking orders, Muhammad, if you're that junior manager. And yeah, you're probably learning and all that. But I mean, when Phil said to me, when he recruited me into that bank on day one, he said, literally, here's the keys. Now go do it. If you need me, I'm here. If you don't, you won't see me. And I knew when to take advantage of that. But it was such freedom to walk. And I had this giant budget. And I had this building I was going to transform. And it was entirely up to me. Scary, uh, but I was also able to recruit my own team, kind of like me, but not kind of like me, and a good mix of people from outside. Because again, we were convinced that the culture wasn't going to change. And that's what we needed, a culture shift, if we didn't build it from scratch within reason. You know, the flip side of, you know, I guess leadership, what I'm hearing from you, you could be this arrogant leader that tells everybody how to get things done. We know, you know, most leadership these days is uh, rank and roll, you know, yeah. do as I tell you and right. And it's, but on the other side, there's that leader who's humble to say, I don't know. And is modest enough to say, you know, why don't you show me? And that I think is how we, to your point, move out of the way and develop leaders because we're not going to be around. And, you know, if we're talking about a workplace, if we're talking about, companies and organizations, we are not going to form roots where we stay there forever. We'll, we'll, we'll move on. We'll either leave the company or our yeah, time will come. Exactly, exactly. But how do you move out and make sure that you have left roots for others to build firm foundations, firm mm-hmm. trees with integrity? And you know those roots are also, they have the expertise and the skill sets because you've mentored, because you've coached, right? You well, work with a group of you know, international 
writers and, and you know, thought leaders. But you don't, you know, it's, it's, your, it's your brainchild, right? Mm -hmm. But you're not there necessarily telling people what to do. Can you explain your relationship with this group of people that you work with and how you spawn leadership? Well, uh, first and foremost, I'd say, almost like the leadership discussion we just had, when we gave birth to BizCatalyst, we wanted to continue down the path, we being me and others, we wanted to continue down the path of, I'm gonna use that age old term change maker, there's probably a better word for it, but we wanted to take what we saw, and that was about eight years ago, as the publishing model. And at the time it was Huffington Post, Forbes, a lot of these, not, not the news organizations, but the other ones, Harvard Business Review, all the normal business, ones that I used to go to when I was active in banking and mergers and I was doing research. And I kind of cataloged it in my mind what I didn't like about going to their websites for different reasons. Could be pop-ups, could be advertising, could be hard to get anywhere, could be um, content wasn't fresh, could be the writing was kind of came out of a, a textbook versus a real person. So when we gave birth to Biz Catalyst, and this is getting a little more over into our startup here, we kind of had a whiteboard, a proverb, and said, we're gonna take every rule that exists today in the um, publishing world for those other publications, and we learned that through talking to people that write for them, and we're gonna break every rule. And we were, let me say, I used the term blessed earlier. That's meant not in a necessarily spiritual way, but I meant just, I, I was blessed enough to have enough success that I could build a model that had nothing to do with economics. It wasn't about whether it was going to make money. It was about if you're given the freedom to just do something like build this site with a blank sheet of paper and could do what you want, not what the advertisers would be happy with, not what these people, but just build it. So we broke all the rules and I can go down all the rules, but generally we wanted to say to people like you, Muhammad, look, you're a good writer. You're a good business person right from the heart, right? What inspires you? And by the way, if it's a hundred words or 2000 words, we don't care. Now we knew there were restrictions and Muhammad, if you don't, if you're busy, if you can't write, but maybe once every three or four months, that's okay. Versus Forbes, it says, if you want to keep your credentials, you got to write X so often. And Muhammad, when you come in, we're not going to rewrite what you wrote versus Forbes that has a team of junior editors. And I've heard war stories. And Muhammad, if you're, if you're kind enough to write something for me, and it's the first time it's ever appeared anywhere, I'm going to thank you, but I'm going to put it right at the front of our publishing queue. And if you gave it to me today, it's going to be published tomorrow, unless it's a weekend. I won't do it on a weekend because I want to give you more visibility during the week. If I send it to Forbes, it's going to take six weeks. It'll come back three or four times. So we went down all those rules and kept saying, if we can just get Muhammad and all of his fellow writers to the point that all they need to do is write. And once they write, we're gonna do all the uploading, we're gonna do the image select, we're gonna do the edit, we're gonna do the publishing, we're gonna do sharing. So to give a writer, we've learned, if you give a writer that freedom, it is absolutely amazing what they come up with because now they're, you've taken off all the blinders and all the shackles mm -hmm. and Muhammad's gonna define what kind of a writer he is because he now knows he may be a leadership guy, but he can write about his observations on humanity today, the changing world because of the pandemic. 
because you've got it inside you. But if you were Forbes, you can't do that because that's, that's kind of a business thing. Now, what's interesting with that theory we had, you know, frankly, again, we didn't have to worry about, is it going to make money? Nothing. We don't do any advertising. So we're never driven by, we don't have a board of directors that says, Dennis, let me look at that a little closer as your editorial bit board manager. Now that put a lot of ownership on us, frankly, to do the right thing once again, and to make sure that we're publishing is uh, respectable. Because when you give some people too much freedom, they'll start attacking. Um, you know, do it in kind of a malicious way. So, and we, you know, we don't do gambling type stuff. We don't do vaping. We don't do adult stuff. You know, we're approved for children basically, and we have a credential that says it. So you do it thoughtfully. And we started out and it was amazing. You know, we started out slow and then it started picking up. And then four year, five years into it, we got an award. Now we didn't know we were even in running for an award. It was an international body. And it was a um, standard of excellence award. And I'm, I think you know this, but I'm thrilled to say three weeks ago, we got an identical award from the worldwide body that judges websites. And we are up against some of the biggest websites in the world. And standard of excellence, which we will admit, isn't because Dennis figured out how to do this. It's because we've been blessed by so damn many good writers around the world and gave them the freedom to do what they couldn't do elsewhere. So it's kind of come full circle that good writing, freedom, and a little bit of scruples behind it to make sure nobody goes off base and not insulting people like Muhammad when they come to our site by having 10 pop-ups and trying to sell them something. Wow. And uh, I was talking to a tech guy a few months back and he was, we we're talking about, he was an expert in building websites and all that stuff. And, talking about why we've grown so big. When I say big, we've now published, I think it's uh, 23,000 articles wow. in eight years. And eight years. Uh, and how many people? How many uh, writers? Uh, 722 as of this morning. Amazing. But, but Amazing. Let me tell you, there was, there was a shift though. And I was talking to this guy about it. Uh, and he said, there's a couple ways you judge a website. If you want to forget about Google and SEO, which we've never cared about that. It really doesn't matter to us what our ranking is. In incidentally, we have a very high ranking because Google can't ignore us. We have such stealth when it comes to volume. You know, you Google anything about BizCatalyst, you'll see articles galore. Anyhow, he was saying what you guys do interesting. He said, if you want to judge a website by success these days, it ain't about how many people visit. Yeah, that's important if you want to get advertiser rates going up. But what's really important is how many people hang around long enough, Mohammed, to number one, read the full article, and most importantly, engage with the writer. Yeah. He said, Dennis, here's a measurement for you. And he kind of picked this, he developed this over the years. He said, if when you're looking at your overall website stats, and he knows that we don't count how many visitors. In fact, if you look at any article website, you'll never see a date, you'll never see how many hits. We don't track it because we think engagement's important. And uh, so he said, take the number of articles you published. And at that time, we were at around 21,000 when I had this discussion. He said, multiply that times 10%. He said, if you can get even close to 10% in terms of number of comments on those, or 2,100 comments, or if you're even close to that, you are at the top of the heap. We were at, when he said that, 
we were at 29,000 comments. We were, we had uh, 8,000. More comments articles. than? We had articles. He said, I've never heard of that. I said, well, because people engage, because we've, over years, we've focused on engagement. He said, that is truly remarkable. He said, you know what? An advertiser would kill. <laughs> We'd kill to have it. I said, well, we're not for sale. So. And Dennis, would I be wrong in suggesting that the type of writer or collaborator that you bring to this catalyst is somebody who leads from heart? You know, oh, I've, it all starts right, there. Right. And it's, big, it's built on values. So, you know, when you talk about we don't need to do this and we've chosen not to do this, you know, what I hear is you've picked these ethical values. Maybe ethical is a strong word, but you've picked values. And you've said, you know, we're, we're going to pick people over profits. And this is something that I say often because when you choose people over profits, you choose heart over, over command, over, over, you know, you choose service over rank and, and role. And when I've met some of the people on your platform, they're warm, they're inviting, they're inspiring. I feel like I've made friends and, you know, <laughs> sincerely, you know, I'm thinking, wow, I feel lucky today. And it's not about how many people, you know, just comment and like, but it's the quality of, of the interaction. You know, well, it's what you're doing, what, what you are doing exactly. And what the other people that you're talking about are doing is they're doing what we've been talking about for a number. They're bringing social back to social media. It ain't about LinkedIn wow. or Facebook. Or it, yeah. It's it's what's happening there because there's a lot of junk coming through LinkedIn and it's big and all that. But we have this nucleus of people like you that just get it and you understand there are real relationships you can form if you take the time. And it's all centered on heart-based writing, of course. You know, one of the biggest obstacles we have, and I just have to share this, uh, of when new writers come on board, particularly people that we've seen these days, because we're big enough now, people come to us uh, generally, but occasionally I'll be reading something on LinkedIn or Facebook or somewhere. And I'll say, you know, that is so good. I'm going to reach out to Muhammad. And Muhammad, I really like what you wrote there. And given the fact that you obviously know how to write, we'd like to invite you to come write for us. What's interesting, there's a percentage of writers. And again, this is probably the skeptical world we live in or the publishing world that they live in. They want to know what the catch is. They want to know what the hook is. And I, we've gone to the point of now saying to them in writing, look, there's no catches, there's no surprises, there's no hooks, there's no cost, no kidding. It is, it is as pure. But now we've moved to saying, and if you, Mohammed, if you don't, you know, don't trust me, go to the other writers, pick anyone. It's unfiltered. It's unfiltered. That's right? the point. Like, so there's no BS. Right. Pick, pick one of them and see if what we're saying is true. See if after two weeks writing for us, we said, okay, Mohammed, thanks for joining us. Now you better start writing once a month or else you're off the panel. So we've learned over time, we're dealing with skepticism because people aren't used to something being that open, honest, and candid. And to your earlier point, having these kind of values have come full circle because we were at it. We were going at it. We didn't know what was going to happen. But eventually it caught up to us and now we're excelling because there's enough people that are realizing there is a nice place you can go. You can feel safe to write what you want. You're not going to be censored in these days. That's even a bigger issue. We've got writers coming to us now saying, I'm afraid to publish on Facebook. I'm afraid to publish on even LinkedIn. I'm afraid to publish on Twitter because if I use a certain word, it's going to be flagged.
And we said, well, we don't do that as long as you're respectful and blah, blah, blah. So we now have people boomeranging because of the environment over to us and we'll take them because they're good. And Dennis, let's not kid around. You know, you have writers who are authors, you know, published many yeah. times, coaches, professional yeah. uh, uh, professors, you know, you've got newbies, but you know, when I've, when I've seen the list of people and I, I get surprised from time to time and even in these salons that you host, you know, and when we, when this goes live, we'll share with people the various activities that uh, your organizations help to, to, to uh, encourage. But these are people that I've seen in other social platforms where I've said, wow, like this person is pretty um, <laughs> celebrated on this platform. And well, then I, I connect. I connect with them and they're so down to earth. Let me tell you, in our early morning conversations when nobody's around, my wife and her having our, we do a walk every morning to kind of reconnect with each other. I said, I am some morning, I am just so amazed that XYZ is writing for us. I couldn't imagine that person writing for our platform. And I'm still humbled and joy, I'm full of joy that they would even select us, forget us selecting them. Blessed. And, uh, you know, not in a spiritual sense. I mean, I'm a spiritual person, but this As is a blessing. This is a blessing because you put out in the universe and you'll get it back. I believe in karma. I it believe does come full circle. Give, Absolutely. Yes, that's you give good positive, Yeah, you give up positive energy, you get back positive energy. It's like the leaders, you know, come back to leadership. You isolate yourself in your tower. You don't go out. You don't check on people. You don't call up somebody during crisis or during the good times to say they've done a good job and during the times when they've gone absent to say, are you okay? You know, when you are the sort of leader that shows that you care, that you've got integrity, that you build a relationship on values, you will get that back. You'll get the trust. People will work Amen. for you because they want to. So let me ask you, because you and I can continue this conversation <laughs> yeah. for hours. This is where I introduce the unfiltered thought of the week. So I say to you, Dennis, given the gifted writers that you've helped to encourage and motivate and empower on your platform, if you could give a piece of advice to anyone, maybe to a writer, to someone who wants to become a better person, a better human being, what would the unfiltered piece of advice be? I can't help but be repetitive. Otherwise, I would be authentic. It's always do the right thing. And let me expand upon that for just a minute. I've talked to people over the years, particularly people I'm mentoring, they're, well, how do you know what the right thing is? I said, you know, if you're of age, which means you're now an adult, maybe late teens, you're kidding yourself if you don't think you know what the right thing is. Yeah. You can define the right thing a lot of different ways, Muhammad, as you know. So my guiding thing, which always is where my wife and I are centered, no matter what we're deciding to do is, is it the right thing? I know I can get away with something else. I know I can be more profitable doing that but is it the right thing? And if you do it always, back to your point of good karma, it does come full circle. We've seen that happen time and time again to the point that that is our mantra. That's what we do. For anyone that doesn't know what the right thing looks or tastes or smells like, they know how it feels. Of course and they after, do. Right? And after a while, you know, when you said it, I'm pointing here because there's that sincere feeling of elation and comfort and deep breath reaction to the action you put forth and you say that felt right, yep. right? You, you, you give charity in, in, in secret and you see the difference it makes to that orphan or to that homeless person, or you, you help mentor somebody, you do a good deed 
And don't tell me you can't tell what the right thing is. You, Amen. you Amen. start learning. You become the right thing. And I want to thank you for continuing to generate that feeling of righteousness. But, and I don't mean that in a tight way. <laughs> no, I know what you mean. Right? It's, it's how do we continue to be authentic and exercise integrity in everything that we do. Thank you for showing that uh, in, in the work that you do and on the platforms that you help uh, to empower and motivate people. And thank you for being my unfortunate guest today. Thank you, Mom. It's been a great discussion. All the best to you. Take care, uh, my friend. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Unfiltered, the show about authentic leadership and personal growth. Like what you heard? Click subscribe, share it, and tell a friend about it. And don't forget to leave a rating.